everybody. Welcome back to the Grey and Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1970s. Except for a whole bunch of this year, we're going to be reviewing an amazing series from the early 2000s called X-Men Hidden Years that is set in the early 70s or, you know, like 12 years ago in the X-Men's time, but like 50 years ago in our time because that's how sliding time scales work. Uh, I'm so happy to have a couple of, uh, of returning friends, Gregory Wright and Justin Kosmichuk, with us. And I'm be, I'm thrilled to uh, welcome uh, new guest, Jason Liebig, uh, here today. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. I'll have you use your gender pronouns, let us know where we might know you from. And uh, the silly question for today is, have you ever been micromanaged by a uh, boss? Because Professor X is ridiculous in the issue we're going to be reviewing in a little while. Uh, let's go in the order of uh, Jason, Greg, and then Justin. Hello, my name is Jason Liebig. Um, I am a he, him. Uh, and have I ever been micromanaged by a boss? Um, I suppose it's possible. I'm sure it's happened. Um, I think I was micromanaged by seven different Marvel presidents at one point. Um, that may have just been aggression. That may have just been Bill Janus. <laughs> I don't know. Um, he felt like seven different presidents. Um, sorry, but, uh, but no, I think I tend to leave jobs, uh, that I micromanage. So if I do, I just don't remember it. And that's my deal is I think that's my intro. And, uh, where do people know you from Jason? Oh, um, you know, these days, uh, they may know me from my delightful uh, social media where I talk about vintage Food, contemporary food. Um, lately, I you know I like to say it. I'm I'm lucky to be able to say it. you can catch me every Sunday on the History Channel on a show called The Food That Built America, where I sort of do the same. Where I talk about I tell stories of the histories of food and the people who made them in America. Um, it's kind of on the nose. I certainly have questions about that today as well. But people may also know Jason from his. Um, Stint as a Marvel editor in the oh, early 2000s. Of course. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I presume like, oh, yeah, that was that. obvious. Oh, yeah, that's why I'm actually here. Okay, yeah, that too. I worked on the X-Men, which I will never stop telling people about. It is a fun thing. And, except to work, for today, apparently. I used to work on the Marvel handbooks, and that's always my favorite fun fact to throw in. Like, yeah, I, I used to write Marvel. Then, like, what? <laughs> Everything else you've ever done is not cool, but that's amazing. <laughs> it's hard to beat it. Uh, Gregory, let's go to you next. Hi. Hi, I'm Gregory Wright. I'm continuing to be he, him. Um, you might know me from a little book called Silver Sable. <laughs> uh, as a writer, uh, Nick Fury, uh, Deathlock, uh, Morbius, uh, and as a colorist about just about everything Marvel put out at one point uh, in DC. Uh, a lot of Batman work. Um, and currently working on... Uh, the Ghosts of Matacumba K with uh, Graham Nolan, where uh, it's a big, it's a ghost story in Florida with a lot of um, a nefarious uh, bad guys. And uh, have you ever been micromanaged? Only by Jason. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 that's Ouch. not true. I, you know, the only time I was ever micromanaged was when uh, I, I used to work for a company called Fisher's Big Wheel, which was kind of like a, a mini Kmart. And uh, my job was to create videotapes that. Um, taught the employees how to do their work so they didn't have to send a manager to, to teach, to train people. Um, and, uh, the, the, my boss, um, was a former secretary who somehow weaseled herself into this position, but had no idea how to, um, shoot video, edit video or do anything, but tried to micromanage every single thing that I did, um, to make my day, uh, much less fun. 
So, but other than that, no, it's like, you know, much like Jason, you know, at Marvel, I really wasn't micromanaged. Uh, they, they, you know, kind of, I knew what the boundaries were and, and I kind of got to do a whole lot of stuff that I, I'm still surprised that uh, they let me do. It's uh, it's really fun to have people who worked on the actual book we're going to be reviewing here with us for the book review. We've been doing the early 60s stuff for so long. It's uh, <laughs> wild to be at a different time. Uh, and then finally, Justin. Hi, my friend. Hello. Um, thank you for having me back. So I'm Justin Kosmichuk. Online, I go by Jay Cosmic. My pronouns are he, him. Online, I am mostly on Instagram. Um, I'm big into cosplay or have gotten into it into the last couple of years as well as a big toy collector. I know Chad actually through the cosplaying. That's how I met him. And um, longtime fan of the comics. Um, I did read this, um, the X-Men Hidden Years, like when I was really getting into the books early on. So um, it's something I'm looking forward to getting back into and refreshing myself with again. And as for the topic, um, I did have a boss in particular who was very much micromanaging. So I used to do security many years ago. And um, I had a boss who basically, um, so he was very homophobic. And the second in his basically supervisor was also kind of the same way. So I got stuck training everybody, but I never got permanent staff. So um, once I'd train everybody, he'd give everybody else the staff I trained and I'd be stuck with nobody and kind of drove me out of there. But it was for the best. I'm in a better place now and have been thriving since professionally. So all in all, while it was a rough place to be in, you know what? It works out in the end. Yeah, it's great to see you, man. It's been a minute. Uh, lastly, I'm uh, Chad Anderson. I use him pronouns as well. You guys know me from this show, but I am a uh, writer, a documentarian. My day job is as a therapist. So the job I got micromanaged at was right out of school. I took a job at working at Child Protective Services, which is one of the two worst jobs I've ever had. They hired me full time and told me I'd be responsible for about 15 kids. And then they gave me 40. And the bosses were completely hands off until there was some sort of crisis. And then they would go everything like fine tooth comb. And it was super stressful and frustrating. It was a it was a job where my hair was going gray far too early. and It was very, very stressful. So I'm, uh, I'm glad to not be there now. And now I'm self-employed and life is much better. Uh, so let's begin, Jason, with you. I always like to ask people at the beginning kind of the question of, tell me your origin story. Uh, you're welcome to share whatever you like, but I'd love to hear a little of your journey from a comic fan into professional. And uh, I, again, I know you're hosting shows now, which is a big part of your journey as well. Uh, yeah, um, my, my journey, like a lot of kids, um, I grew up on, you know, comics in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, some of my favorite comic books were John Byrne, Chris Claremont's X-Men. Um, so, you know, when if you would have jumped forward or jumped backward to tell me, hey, you're going to work with John Byrne and separately, Chris Claremont uh, on the X-Men, I would have said you were crazy. And isn't that wild? Um, but it really happened. But, I, you know, I, I went to college and trying to find my way. I was I, I grew up in Nebraska, University of Nebraska. I, I graduated from the university and uh, a local comic book retailer who was very successful, who knew people at Marvel in D.C., said, oh, you should try to get a job at Marvel. And and so I met, went to a Chicago Comic-Con in 93, met with a few people there. And I, mean, I did graduate with a degree in marketing, um, of all things. 
And uh, and I met with people at Marvel. I met with people at DC. I then went out to New York City to follow up because I, I wasn't getting calls and uh, and got a tour through Marvel, but then kind of got a proper interview over at DC and then, you know, didn't there's, there's this long story I tell that has a lesson about never giving up where I just kept calling DC because they did say, hey, we're going to have two marketing positions open soon. And I would call and not get a call back. I would call and not get a call back. I would call and not get a call back. And every time I'd sit there looking at the phone for like 10 minutes, just filled with fear, gripping fear before I'd make that call in the old days when it was, you know, on a cord. Um, but then I think like three months into that, this guy named Bob Wayne answers the phone finally. And he's like, I got your messages, all of them. Because I had, at one point I had said, listen, I know you filled the job, but I've decided I'm selling my car. I'm moving to New York City. And can you give me advice on, and this is so like, it's so like innocent, but also very much like for me, it was very brave. I said, listen, just tell me what I can do in that first year in New York city to make myself, you know, essentially paraphrasing myself, but like, what can I do to be in a better position to get the job that you have already filled? And he says, well, we haven't filled the positions. I came out to New York city, boom. And I think March of 94 um, or April of 94, I interviewed with them with a woman, lovely woman named Ann Ivan. And a week later, I had a job. I worked at DC, working at all the comic book conventions for a year, working in marketing. They started to transition into sales, which I didn't like. I didn't want to call comic book stores and convince them to buy more copies of comic books, um, even though I love the comic book store owners. And then I, I ended up leaving DC, um, but I had made all these wonderful relationships working throughout the business, going to comic cons. I knew people at Marvel. I knew people at Dark Horse. Anyway, so. Um, about six months later, a friend of mine at Marvel introduced me to their salespeople and marketing people thought I could get in over there. I didn't. And then he called me again. He said, there's some changes in editorial and come in for an interview. And of course, I thought that's where I really wanted to work. I did want to work in editorial and, uh, and help with the storytelling. And I went in and I was surprised to learn I'd be interviewing with editor, with editor in chief, Bob Harris, whose, whose name I knew, but I did not know Bob. And, you know, he sat me down and he asked me this very bold question, which I always tell this story because it's funny, I think. He said, what makes a, what do you think makes a good comic and what do you think makes a bad comic? And I thought, ooh, shit. Um, and I said, well, there's this thing, you know, I said, Mark Wade, I just picked something out of my brain. I said, Mark Wade just wrote this really, really outstanding Superman story. And I wish I could remember the, spec the tightly specifics of it, but essentially... He, they put Superman in the in the body of this kid who was obsessed with Superman and had like, I don't know if he had learning disabilities or something, but he was essentially institutionalized. And Superman, of course, I said, because Superman's a really hard character, right? He's basically invulnerable. You know, how do you deal with that? And and so but now Superman is in the body of this kid who loves Superman, is obsessed with Superman. So if he goes and tells people he's Superman, that's really not going to cut it. But he also now has to protect this this person who is not invulnerable. And I thought, wow, what a great challenge to put this guy who normally faces none of these obstacles, you know. And so it, they are new obstacles for the character. I said, what a great way to uh, to do that. Now, now I also so I said, what makes a bad comic? I said, well, and this is the funny thing is this was coming out of his office. Bob Harris, famous for editing the X Men, um, as he ascended to editor in chief, he was still overlooking the X Men at the time. And I said, well, you guys are doing this thing called onslaught in the X Men. And if I understand correctly, it's like Professor X becomes like this big bad villain or something. And I said, you know, and I said, what I've seen of it 
it seems really sort of like awful and boring. And I said, and it sort of looks like what DC did just did with Hal Jordan turning into Parallax, only maybe a little worse. And I really said that, right? <laughs> so that's what I said. I thought made a bad comic. And Bob was like, I, it felt like he was silent for like five minutes, but he was silent. He goes, because I think I said, yeah, that was my first impression of Onslaught. Because I wanted to give it, you know, some, it was just my first impression. And he said, yeah, that was my first impression of it too. And apparently like after that interview, he knew that I was the proper person to come in and be the assistant on the X-Men. And then I met with Mark Powers, I think right after that, and maybe like the, the, a couple of days later. And somehow I got hired onto the uh, the X-Men as an assistant to the X-Men group uh, in editorial, which is sort of like coming on to like the fifth season of Friends. It is a, and was, and continues to be, I'm sure, but it certainly was then, just this very well-oiled, dysfunctional machine that just is raring because they were the top-selling books in the marketplace at the time. It had been for some time. And it was like a fucking dream come true. It was really neat. So that's my what, origin story. What years were you on the X-Men books? Um, I want to say like late 95, early 96 to the end of 2000. Yeah, so okay. it was just about just under five years, I think, all, all told. I, uh, I, I, I was an assistant for probably two years, and then the remaining time I was a full editor. I was uh, actively collecting in, in high school during this time. And then from the year, from the end of 1997 to the end of 1999, I was a Mormon missionary with like a tie mm. knocking on doors. And comic books were against the rules, but I'd still go buy them and like hide them under my mattress like they were playbooks. <laughs> so whenever that... I hear that, like this era of X-Men, like uh, the Onslaught era and just after, that's like, I always think about how I'd had to like read in secrets. <laughs> <laughs> it's very sinful, I think. Yeah, it was standing. Yeah, I'm no longer practicing. It's fine. <laughs> I, I someone now I think someone needs to launch a podcast called Forbidden X Men, or maybe Marvel needs to write the book. You know, like Forbidden X Men coming March 2024. So, this was a pretty wild time on the X Men titles uh, when they yeah. launched when they launched X Men Volume Two in the early 90s. And then there was like eight books going around and then there was like a limited series for every character and every year they're trying to like revamp and retool and here's the new creative team here's the new teams. Uh, it was it was an exciting time plus we had the cartoon on the air uh, at this point and like the the fandom was really expanding the movies were just starting. What was it like working in the X office in uh, the late 1990s and Gregory I'd love for you to answer this one as well but uh, Jason let's have you go first. Yeah, I think I think just speaking to your larger question, I mean, all of us who were there, you know, Gregory, I mean, anybody, you know, and oftentimes when we bump into each other, like when I bump into people at Comic-Con or whatever, um, we'll, we'll sort of revisit those things. I mean, look, it was a time, you know, certainly when Jim and, and Chris launched X-Men number one, was it 91 and it sold, what was it, like 8 million, 10 million, 12 million copies or whatever. Um, you know, the, the, there was a, those were heady times. And as... <laughs> corporate types do who might be prone to micromanaging you know they make decisions based on you know uh, irrealist unrealistic information and data points so look they they wanted to keep that machine rolling even though it was just caused by people like me buying 10 copies of x-men number one <laughs> you know and these were irrational behaviors by me then by the corporate execs led by people like me but just a lot a lot of them um, so no, so yes, you're right. There were a lot of books. Um, I think at one point, right before I came into Marvel, they were publishing something like 140 different separate books a month, um, which is just an insane amount of yeah. books. And then they went through these terrible things called Marvelution, 
um, where Marvelution sounds like a fun event. No, it's like laying off a quarter of your staff, you know, so it's like terrible. Um, and so what you had was, and actually the funny thing is during, I think that first interview with Bob that I, that was part of my origin story, you know, editorial as a whole had been sort of shell-shocked. They saw their friends lose their jobs. And so, you know, a year after that or whatever, I was coming in and uh, he said he was looking for someone with fire. And so I thought that gave me permission to be very, uh, you know, outspoken and, and boisterous or whatever. And because I didn't know any better and, you know, whatever, I had opinions, a lot of them wrong, but I had them. And uh, and so I came and I was boisterous and fiery, but no, so it was uh, it was complicated. Um, I was also there during the two years of bankruptcy, you know, so mm -hmm. we're, you know, you know, I'm not even being political when I say this, you know, I, I actually think in the period of time I was at Marvel, there were seven different corporate presidents. And I started with Terry Stewart, who a lot of people know, and Terry Stewart was there for a while. And then it just rolled through these, these various individuals, you know, Joe, Joe Calamari, I mean, Bill Jemis and, and some lovely people in between. But so I used to say, you know, you were just sort of at each other's whims, but there was this, there's this fascinating thing that happens with presidents is because especially during the bankruptcy, each one was sort of angling to keep that job. And so it didn't serve them to support efforts of the previous executive president. So what you would have is you would have a president come in and he wants to put his stamp on what's happening at Marvel Comics or Marvel Entertainment, you know, writ large. And so they would start some efforts and they'd give approval to certain projects and then they would be pushed off for whatever reason. And then the next guy would come in and would immediately like, okay, the stuff that guy did, fuck that, you know, that's dead, right? It's like, oh, you want to do adult, you know, non-code approved books? It's like, that's what the last guy did. No, you're not doing that anymore because Walmart will stop buying our comic books if you do that. We're going to come up, we're going to spend $300,000 to come up with a new Marvel logo. What? So we're going to do Fumetti comics or whatever, you know, photos of people. Um, so it was that that was a very strange time. And, you know, it's but working on the books themselves um, was look, it was exciting and it was fun. You know, I, I ended up coming in when Scott Labdell was writing both of the books. And for a time, I think Mark Wade was there. And then we brought Chris Claremont back. But, you know, I you know, I could certainly talk for miles and I've already spoken for miles on what that sense but it was just it was neat there were so many neat experiences i remember going out to lunch with chris claremont and scott labdell this is before chris had come back to work on the books again you know he had famously written the books for all the time you know and famously helped was one of the main hands who revitalized the x-men to turn them into the thing <clears throat> that created this model for storytelling that was used in so many things this you know and uh, at least within comics. And, uh, you know, I, I just remember a conversation walking back from lunch, back to the offices where we're talking about the Mutant Registration Act. Right? Sure. Yeah. This idea. And uh, and discussing whether this thing, the Mutant Registration Act, would exist in real life. And so it was fascinating because, you know, Scott Abdel, um was like, oh, yeah, it was we would absolutely have it. And Chris Claremont, you know, very much being this, I, I believe, this sort of idealist in how he wants to see the world. He said, well, constitutionally, that would never happen. We are individuals. We have rights and everything. And so, you know, but Scott Liddell is like, ah, you know, it's a baby. Basically, it's more of a shotgun on its face. You know, it's like so, of course, they would change the Constitution for that. And so, you know, being in those, I think, fundamental questions that you ask that creates the drama in these sort of books, um, being there for that. And, of course, just meeting legends, Archie Goodwin, you know, Russ Heath and all these people and just yeah, through yeah. tangentially or through actual work. 
you know, seeing these people, meeting great people like Greg Wright, you know, who I didn't really actually meet until like five or six years ago. Yeah, we we never met uh, in yeah. person until, you know, well, just on the phone. Yeah. So my and that that's another story about how my relationship to actually, quote unquote, I'm, I'm doing air quotes, working on X-Men, The Hidden Years. Yeah, my name is on the book. I really didn't have much to do with it. And that was by design by John because he didn't want anyone interfering with his work. And, you know, while that angered me at the time and frustrated me, maybe it frustrated me initially and angered him. <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I don't, I didn't begrudge him then exactly. I so wanted to be involved, right? I was desperate to want to be involved. And he just wanted to do what he wanted to do. And, you know, as I said then, and I have said now, you know, look, if anybody's entitled to that, it's him. But it, it would have been fun um, to, to have had had more of a, a, you know, an actual collaborative hand in that. But I, I, I did not. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, so working on the X-Men, man, I mean, if you love the X-Men, which I very, very much did, it was fun. Of course, like anything, you know, it was frustrating and, you know, heartbreaking at times. But it was never not a dream job. And there, there were so many demands. You know, the one thing. One of the things that I learned is you'd think it's this big, like I said, Friends season five or whatever, you know, that was my example. But, you know, it's like it's this machine that's doing so well. And you would think that you're not going to be micromanaged or you're not going to, you know, you're not you're going to kind of coast on momentum. But no, we I, I always felt at the time we were we were thinking more about every phase and maybe overthinking about every phase of every book from the color of the the, the logos that month to just where, you know, where, where balloons were placed. I mean, everything was nonstop. You just didn't half-assed anything, you know, even though it may have looked like you did at times, you know, for, for various reasons, trying to keep schedules, trying to keep that monthly schedule um, or just making mistakes. But, you know, it was, it was like you were on the, all these metaphors, but it's like being on the New England Patriots, right? With Tom Brady as your quarterback, you know, the X-Men were Tom Brady. And so you just wanted to make sure you, you did well for your quarterback. And that's, that's where I'll stop at that, and hopefully you'll get a better answer out of me with a different question. <laughs> You're doing just fine. Uh, Gregory, same question. What was it like to work on these books uh, in that period of time? Well, the, the thing is, you know, at, at one point, Bob Harris had actually called me to, to do some writing. And um, I realized that the last thing I wanted to do was work on the X-Men titles, where the, the current writers were very precious about every little thing that they did. Uh, and, you know, as Jason will indicate, there's so much micromanaging that happens on those titles because they're the important titles and you know you decide to do one thing it gets approved and then three seconds later it's changed i said no 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 uh, i i can't do that that's not for me um so most of the stuff i ever did in the x office was color and the thing is by the time that it's my turn i you know i barely ever got to talk to jason because He's already frazzled from everything else. The last thing he needs is me asking, hey, man, what about this over here? So they tended to hire me because they knew they didn't have to worry about me. I, I had the reference. Um, you know, Tom Palmer had actually, I, I'm on the book because of Tom Palmer. He called me up and said, would you would you color this for me? And I was like, wow, that's awesome. I mean, Tom and I had been friends, but, you know, I, I hold Tom in very high regard, especially mm. since he's a colorist. So I was so kind Tom, of doing my best Tom Palmer being color. Tom Palmer being the inker that famously worked over Neil Adams, who also worked on this book. On this book yeah. So, you know, he had called me and I was like, well, but you can't hire me. You'll you'll have to talk to, to whoever the editor is. And I said, who's the editor? And they told me, and I'm like, who's that? 
you know, because, you know, I had, you know, because I was only working a certain amount. And, and it's like Jason probably said, there's there are a lot of people who are kind of coming and going, especially those idiot presidents. Um, but, uh, you know, so for me, it really wasn't a big deal. It was all it was all for me. It was about schedule because, you know, this, you know, Jason got the stuff whenever John Byrne deemed it, it uh, to get it to him. Tom Palmer worked his butt off to ink it. And I think Jim Novak lettered it. Is that right, Jim Novak? Uh, I'll go back and check, but go ahead. I think so. Um, so the schedule, I had no control over it. Jason had no control over it. So the stuff would come in and big thing was Jason would be like, I got to send this book out. At least Burn might have, wasn't Burn lettering it himself? Yeah, right? at least for this issue, Burn, Burn was doing oh, did he? Uh, writing, penciling, yeah. and lettering. Oh yeah, because yeah. you know, he had, you know, but that's the thing. Burn wanted all the control, <laughs> except for he didn't care anything about what I was doing because I kept trying to call him. And he had zero interest in what I was, in anything I had to talk about. So really, I, you know, Tom Palmer and I discussed stuff and, uh, you know, Jason and his assistant got me, there's a ton of reference that was needed because this stuff dovetails into so many things. So, you know, we wanted to make sure we got the colors, you know, correct. And, and thankfully, you know, the separations went over to Ireland where they mangled uh, everything <sighs> and then printed it so dark. I mean, even I'm I'm looking at the paperback and go, this is not what what was meant. Um, so I mean, it was right. kind of frustrating. Whereas some of the X Men books got all this premier treatment, um, but uh, I don't know why this one uh, it, it it didn't. But you know, it's fun to work on these characters. It's fun to work. You know, uh, it's fun to work with Tom. And I said I, it would have been much more fun if Jason and I could have actually chatted more during the thing. But you know, I think by the time you know I, my turn came, his head was about ready to explode. Um, since he wasn't able to, you know, have much impact because, you know, burn. <clears throat> it sounds to me a little bit like they, the offices at the time, there was a pretty heavy culture of everybody stay very autonomous and very busy and do what we expect you to do, but also be willing to change things very quickly when we need. And also don't make us call you and micromanage at all. Like there, there's, there's an interesting energy. And we're, as we're watching, as we're watching Professor X, uh, in this issue, like be really awful to the X Men. Uh, it's it's sort of the analogy of the company changing presidents and now micromanaging everyone. <laughs> well, it has nothing to do with John trying to piss off Chris Claremont either. Oh, <laughs> it's it's funny you mentioned bringing it back, of course, to the, to Professor X. There's there was a uh, I think it was recently because I had to send it to Mark Powers. I said this just had me rolling. There's this there was a skit on SNL a, like a few weeks ago, I think. Yeah, yeah. And and they they had like the X Men. At like a, a version of the X Men doing like a like a quiz show, right? A quiz show co co combatant for students, and at one like Professor X is just girl, you know, control yourself, you know. That's their version, of Professor. X. I was like, I just couldn't. It's so like versions of Professor X, and I just literally could not stop laughing. It so hit home for me. Um, but yeah, but speaking, you know, what what Greg said, you know, it's uh, it it's it was rolling. What you just said too, I, that autonomy. <laughs> Um, that desire to get things right. And, you know, it is this big universe. At one point, Chris Claremont, you know, the legendary Chris Claremont was brought in. Um, what was his what was his job title? He was brought in house to be a sort of an editorial overseer to help bring because Bob Harris was busy fighting battles, insulating us as many of these guys, had, but insulating us from these this terrible corporate structure above him. And Chris was then brought in to sort of try to give an even hand to the Marvel universe at a whole. 
And, you know, and he was not working on the X-Men, but then that became, and again, I loved working with Chris. I love Chris, but it, it was like, it was frustrating then trying to deal with Chris who still just loved the characters and loved all this stuff. And so he was bringing this idea. And so it was yet another hand. And I wouldn't say micromanaging there are too many fingers in the pot or what have you, but it was, uh, but you know, it's, I don't know. It was there. It was just always look having to put out books monthly that's that's rough, you know, and it's, you know, and I, I think I've heard that editors now at Marvel are doing even more than we did. They're probably just better. Um, but I just remember it feeling like a lot of work. And uh, but I don't know, you just loved being there, you know, and as it always comes down to for jobs like this, it was so wonderful to work with people and, you know, and do the things you did and get to make up stories about these characters you love. Justin, were you no, reading I, what no, James sorry, was talking about, you know, Bob Harris shielding everybody from you know their corporate overlord idiots that was almost every editor-in-chief that 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 you know it starts out as this cool job where you get to you're hoping to work on the comics and you're hoping to work yes. with the editors that you like and it, it turns into you're you're basically you know trying to be captain america with, with a shield for all the all the bullshit and all the crap that comes yes. flying out of uh, from these idiots who don't know anything about the product they don't know anything about the characters you know, it, it's like he, he just said the various presidents. No, I want to do this and I want to do this. You know, it's like well, like when when we did uh, I, I did uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and I did it right. And they freaked out. And I was like, what did you fucking think this was going to be? <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, oh, but we, uh, you know, but, but no, no, it's a horror comic, yeah. you know, and, and I purposely hired Steve Gerber to write it. So it would be really oh. as fucked up as possible. Um, but that's the thing, you know, you know, uh, you know, because I think Bob Harris sometimes gets a bad rap, you know, but. His job has always been, I have to shield everybody from this. I, I'm responsible for making sure these books make so much money. Right. So he has to. He had to make all these decisions based on making money and sales that didn't always uh, appeal to those people working on the books who may have gotten shoved aside. Um, but that was his job, you know. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think he did a really good job um in, in a lot of cases because it's a it's especially when he became editor-in-chief what a terrible place and he had people oh. coming at him non-stop you know so i i always thought you know i'm good on him for shielding people as well as he was able to and and you know greg to that sorry chad um oh, there's this there's this machiavellian i don't know maybe that's not the right word but there's this sort of also things started to happen like heroes were born that like intensified that pressure in heretofore unforeseen ways like so they took all these heroes books and gave them to the image guys you know well rob and jim which credit to those guys they wanted to do it but then it, you know and this was again one of those presidents coming in and saying hey you know fuck editorial you know they're failing so let's have these guys go do it and you know and if i may just take a dig at heroes born their edict was we can get talent that your editors can't get right that was the thing we're going to get talent that you guys can't get and actually contractually they weren't allowed to get talent that we were working with so within i think three issues of captain america they had the team the entire creative team from cable working on captain america and i was like and i remember sitting there as an assistant editor and i was like because I'm, I'm sharing a, i shared an office with bob Bob Harris, the editor in chief, and Mark Powers. So he was still overseeing the X Men individually. But I remember, like, literally, like, turning around, I was like, they're literally just taking our talent and they're paying them like 10 times because Marvel is now paying them 10 times what, you know, we had. So it was there, there were, 
and I don't mean to make it sound like this terrible political thing, you know, that was certainly an aspect of it, but there was, boy, there were these very flashpoint sort of moments, credit to DC for flashpoint, sorry. Um, but you know, there's these <laughs> flashpoint terrible moments, right. You know, trademark. Um, but where you're like, wow, that really happened. I mean, it would make a good movie, you know, but so, and then things, things like that kept happening. Then there, you know, there was Marvel Knights, there was Earth X, you know, these people, I don't want editorial interference. I mean, John Byrne, you know, I, I think <laughs> the great thing about Hidden Years was John, John Byrne was very clever. It's like, it didn't need to have any editorial influence because it wasn't connected. The, the problem Greg brought up about trying to come on and write the X-Men um, which is where you're trying to do something. And then the person who's writing the lead book, right? Because it's a lead book out of over at a time, 12, you know, well, you can't do that with Wolverine. That's, that's my character, right? Or I'm the Wolverine, you know? And so, or he's my character because I write the uncanny X-Men in this. And so you're not going to run into that with what, with, which John was doing, which was a stroke of genius in a lot of ways. And it was his look. And again, we're going to get into this, but it was his love letter to these great Neil Adams, you know, stories and so forth. Um, the uh, the idea of balancing, uh, you've got to be autonomous and know what you're doing and be direct, but also you've got to be a team player. There is a long history of people leaving Marvel who were creative geniuses because they didn't like being micromanaged or because they felt like the teams were too big, there were too many hands in the pot. I mean, we've I've talked to Steve Englehart about this. I've talked to Chuck Austin about this. Uh, it, it goes on and on. Claremont has left more than once for the same reasons, and I think Byrne as well. Uh, why did both of you stop working at Marvel? And and you're welcome to share what you like when I ask that question. <laughs> uh, Greg, why don't you go first? Uh, you know, the, the, for me, it was, it was a matter of, I had two things, you know, one thing was I, I realized that I was making way more money doing part-time freelance because when, when I was an editor, we were, we were paid less than the secretaries and, and, you know, I, me and my big mouth, I kept saying, you know, to, to the people upstairs is you only have a job because we are the ones who create the product that makes the money that gives you a salary and we should be getting compensated. And they, of course, I, you know, I was like, okay, I never got it. None of us, I mean, you, so you had to really love doing comics to work at Marvel. So in order yeah. to survive, you had to do freelance, which is why so many of the Marvel editors, you know, were writing one or two books because you could, you couldn't make it on that, on that little tiny baby salary that they were paying us at the time. And while I was there, they weren't even giving you a piece of the books. So if you were like the X-Men editor, it didn't matter. Why, why should you care if the book is any good? You didn't get a piece of it. At, right after I left, they kind of instituted uh, the, the, a little piece for the for the editors to do it, which also made a lot of editors do nothing but try to make their books sell and not necessarily make them good. So that's why you wound up having Ghostwriter in every single issue of something or The Punisher in everybody's issue. Um, and it kind of diluted it. So uh, on the one hand, I was making I was actually my was paying my taxes with my salary. Um, so that wasn't so great. And, and, you know, I like to do a lot of work. So I, I, I had the workload of three or four editors, not because anybody asked me because I just couldn't stop taking, creating projects and taking projects. Cause at that point I was a Marvel Epic editor, you know, and I had been given a director to steal a bunch of guys from DC. So I stole <laughs> Alan Grant and I, and Cam Kennedy and, uh, uh -huh. John Wagner. And I was working on Neil Gaiman, didn't succeed with that one. Um, and then finally, you know, and I, and, and then I realized that, you know, my, my wife, you know, who at the time was my girlfriend, she was in DC and I was here and, it, and I was trying to go back and forth and have a relationship 
Plus I was doing like a whole bunch of freelance and I was like, Oh my God, I've got like five candles and burning on all ends. I, something has to change. Yeah. And I knew unless I left staff, I would never change anything. Um, so I, I left staff and moved to Washington. Uh, and suddenly my, my freelance career, uh, went out of, you know, out, out of control, which was great. Uh, I made way more money. Uh, and every editor, you know, at some point wants to, I want to make a comic, because for so long you're working with all this stuff and you you get inspired by, or, I mean, when you work with somebody like Chris Claremont, you know, you don't have a two-minute conversation with Chris. If he wants to talk about a character, you have a two-hour conversation and it's fascinating because he really has thought about it that much, cares about it that much. And it's inspiring because you think, wow, you know, I want to create something that that I feel that deeply about. Um, I want to tell these stories. I have these ideas of how to visually tell a story, you know, because I, I was a filmmaker, so I always I want you know I wanted to tell my stories more visually, um, you know. So you, it's more attractive to go um, freelance. So that that's why I left. There was really no dirt. I mean, I was they were letting me do anything I wanted. If I wanted to do a project, they approved it in in a heartbeat. If I wanted to write something, they gave it. I mean. I, you know, I have no dirt, you know, I, I was, I, you know, and I gave a two week notice and everybody was shocked. They were like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Jason, how about you? I was asked to leave. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the longer version is, uh, you know, the, the Marvel Knights guys, uh, Joe Casada ascended to the editor chief's position. We had come out of bankruptcy with uh, Ike Perlmutter and the Toy Biz people taking control, um, using, in my opinion, largely pilfered Marvel money because they made a, a series of bad deals, but they made a very bad Toy Biz deal. Um, but that is another story. And, uh, but Bill Jemis and Joe Casada, you know, had all these very, uh, you know, they made all these proclamations about how great they were going to do things and how shitty kind of we had done things before. And, you know, I had been asked when I was hired at Marvel to have fire and I forgot to turn that fire out when Bob Harris left the building. <laughs> and so I very famously told, you know, and very look, look, I very, you know, I, I look back and I think, well, you could have cared about your job security more. But I also cared about just telling people what I really thought. And, you know, I. And so we would go and at one point, I think the thing that killed me was at one point they were like Bill Jemis, they wanted to, they were trying to do this Wolverine origin story, right? Which they ultimately did, right? The origin of Wolverine. And I told them what I really thought of this concept. And, but I also made it very personal and I put digs into it. And, uh, and then like Bill Jemis literally was like, you know, had me up against a wall yelling in my face when I was trying to get a budget question. I ran into the hallway. It was like the West Wing were walking, talking, but then all of a sudden, we're in this little stairwell that went up to the executive floor and he's like, got me in the corner. He's like yelling, you've gone up against me twice, Liebig, and no one fucking goes up against me twice. Um, because I challenged their ideas with questions and, and my thoughts on them. So I hated and, Bill Gemma. You know, I mean, you know, look, <laughs> uh, whatever, look, you know, I know he's apologized to someone I know for whatever his, his issues. Then and I know he had like, he came from Fleer, uh, the trading card company, for those that don't know, that Marvel Ooh, owned trading cards. Ooh. Yes, mm -hmm. that qualifies and, you for so much. Well, I mean, you know, look, the the crazy thing is, for all of Bill Jemis's obvious personality flaws, um, you know, um, anger management issues, very very clear anger management issues, which I think he 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 had 
treatment for while he was at Florida because I think he threw like a, a chair through a door or something. Um, you know, some of the ideas did turn out to be very interesting and, you know, the ultimates, right, which were sort of a, a version of Heroes Reborn, a version of Marvel Knights, you know, this sort of reinventing from within, um, which I thought, you know, I was not that keen on, but obviously, like, really did something. This sort of going back to this fundamental storytelling ideas and having the, the braveness, uh, you know, to do some things that you wouldn't normally do, not having Spider-Man put on his costume until like what the sixth issue of the book or something. Um, these are interesting ideas and obviously they served a lot, um, but a lot of them I feel like were served to try to set the stage for the movies, Wolverine origin included, but you know, but I'll, I will tell you, I will, I will tell you the thing that really pissed them off, which was I'm sitting in this room. They brought all the editors down to Joe Casada's place in New Jersey, beautiful little house. And we're sitting there, Bill Jemis is pitching this idea. And I'm like, and I'm just like raising my hand slowly, right? Like, like a little asshole from the back, right? And I'm like, uh, and I was like, you know, I go, I said, I've read a lot of the things. This is where I start off, right? I just go right for the jugular. I said, I've read a lot of things in the press lately where you guys are saying the the old administration is only looked backward and you guys are going to look forward and you're going to make bold decisions. And I said, and isn't, isn't this like, the ultimate looking backward project. And, you know, and he said, well, what if we could get Frank Miller to write it? And I was like, oh, I said, look, I think you'd sell a lot of that, that mini series of books, which is five issues. You'd sell a lot of those five issues of comic books. I said, but, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be better? Like and I said, I've tried to get Frank Miller. He won't return my calls, but I said, look, you, you might be able to get him. I said, but if you could get Frank Miller and if you really wanted to be the, the people that are looking forward, wouldn't it be amazing to bring Frank Miller back to Marvel Comics and have him write, have him write the origin of, quote, the next Wolverine, have him create a brand new character? And wouldn't that be exciting? <laughs> and then just like, tweet out, I said, and then I think I, I probably went on because that's what I do and I'm probably doing it right now. But, you know, and I said, you know, like, I like, he said, well, we're not going to make Wolverine uncool. We're not going to ruin Wolverine. I said, look, you don't have the, you don't have the capability to ruin Wolverine. I mean, you know, it's like Wolverine predates you, right? He's cool. But I said, look, I don't need to see Dirty Harry or Harry Kellen from the Dirty Harry movies. I don't need to see him bullied on the playground lot to appreciate how cool he is now or why he does what he does, right? Like that's that's not important to the character. Yes, you'll sell some books, but you won't have you won't make the character any better, you know, because like, you don't have that capability. And that that was pretty much, I think, then like whatever it was four weeks later, three weeks later, you know, it's like Bill Jemis is like, get rid of him. Get rid of that little fucker who's gone up against me twice. Um, You've rebounded. You've built a career for yourself. Oh, I mean, you Television know, look, and doing other things. What's what's been your track after leaving? I, I mean, look, I, I, I have no regrets. I, I do enjoy telling those stories. I enjoy being a person who stood up for what I believed about comics, right? Like I, when Heroes Are Born was going on, I was like, listen, we're in trouble. Jim, Jim Lee is going to draw a picture of the X-Men on a plane ride to New York and they're going to get the X-Men next, you know? And because it's that easy, because Jim's that fucking good. All he needs to do is draw a cool picture and the president is going to be like, holy shit. Yes, give this guy the X-Men. Look at what he's doing because it's going to be better than anybody we have currently on the books. That's Jim Lee's power, right? At the time, certainly. And so I fought even then. I said, we have to do something. We don't have a plan. And so I, I am very, I'd have no regrets about that. But um, no, but look, you know, I left and uh, I had a friend who had just sold a film to a company 
And uh, they were called Distant Corners at the time. A guy named John Hegeman, who had come from, I don't know, Orion Pictures or New Line or something, had started this company. This was, I think, in 2001. And this was right before the first internet bust. And they were looking for all this internet money and everything. But I was going to go and become a film and television producer, um, which I thought, oh, that's amazing. Like, I would love to work on those mediums. And it was going to be very exciting. They were a, they were a genre company. And then a genre of fiction company. So it was going to be sci-fi, fantasy, horror, you know, superhero stuff. And so I thought, oh man, this is great. And then I negotiated, I got offered the job, I got a salary. I go home to Nebraska for two weeks for Christmas, telling all my friends, yeah, I was working on the X-Men. Now I'm going to become a film and television producer. And oh, this is like, my life is magical. It's magical. Like, how is this possible? I'm so lucky. And then I come back, and then I'm, the week I'm supposed to move into my office, he's like, hey, Jason, this is John. I was like, hey, John, I have to retract the job offer. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> and so my my post-Marvel career was, was not like Greg's, where Greg's like, oh, I was so busy. I was making so much more money. No, I mean, like, I, I just immediately hit the first real terribly frustrating roadblock in my life where I was like, oh, fuck, you know, everything's not going to continue to go this way for me. Um, and then I went out to, you know, this was during the internet bust. I had made friends at all these different places. I was out, I went out to LA for a few weeks to try to get a job. Cause I was like, maybe I could do this, but everyone was laying off like their like online departments at the time, which this is 22 years ago or 21 years ago. It's hard to imagine, but like to put this into perspective, I think at the time sci-fi channel online had, I think 200 employees, you know, they just, there was, it seemed like an, the internet was an unlimited money supply, um, at the time. And, uh, you know, and so everyone was just laying people off. I was at Sony Pictures. They were just laying people off. And if you're going to come for me, if I was going to come from Marvel Comics publishing to those places, it was probably going to be through their online department and work on that area because it was the most sort of logical progression. But so I, you know, after I wouldn't say frustration, just sort of a realization of where I was. I was talking to a friend out there and she said, why don't you go back and be an actor? That's what you wanted to do. So I became a bartender and an actor in New York City post. You know, I went from like guiding the lives of the, of the mutants to getting people drunk and occasionally cleaning up vomit out of bathrooms, you know. <laughs> and so it was a uh, like it wasn't it wasn't a place for for a lot of pride necessarily, but I was very happy with my choices. And that led to different opportunities over time. You know, I did some writing stuff. I had some writing possibilities like Disney TV for a while. And, but that ultimately I've, I've sort of found my way around in this very weird little thing where I, you know, I was talking about the history of candy and now I talk about the history of food and um, yeah, I have a lot of fun doing it, but yeah, that's it. That's my post. So, but my, my post, um, you know, I always say, follow your dreams, believe in yourself, you know, and there's lots of lessons to be learned from that. But like my, post-comic career was not a lot of job security, was not a lot of, uh, you know, was not a lot of consistency or stability, um, you know, because I because I also didn't, I didn't use necessarily, though I will say, when you're an actor in New York City auditioning for things and people you put at the bottom of your fucking acting resume or whatever, oh yeah, worked on the X-Men, you know, that's all anyone wants to talk about. They're like, oh, that was a great audition. You know, it's like, you worked on the X-Men because everyone's fans. So it did serve me in that way. But I did not, as Michael Golden told me, where'd you go, Jason? It's like you disappeared. <laughs> like, I didn't try to stay in comics, you know, because um, I'd worked at DC before and no one was going to hire me over there. They knew me. They knew better. And so I didn't try to go work at Wizard. And really, after that, I didn't want to leave New York. And I don't know that anyone's going to hire me at Dark Horse after working for, you know. So I, I really, once I'd worked on the X-Men, I felt like I'd done it. You know, I'd done it well. I loved it so much 
but nothing was ever going to compare to what I was doing. So I moved on. Um, but I've continued, you know, like I never left. I always was going to the comic cons and stuff, seeing my friends. It was like, I never, I never quite wanted the dream to end. Um, you know, even though I was not ever going to go back to it, but yeah, so it was, you know, it's been chasing dreams, but not, always with the ability to pay my rent on time you know yeah yeah the plan of the actor man you've got a great stage presence as a host i got to watch a lot of your show i watched a lot of your candy show which was really interesting and informative and a lot of like the ones i shot myself yeah i think so i watched uh, watched 10 or 12 of them on youtube on youtube yeah that's right okay all right um yeah that's that's me shooting producing yeah no it's it's a great Um, time Uh, what's what's why anyway yes sir Let's step for a minute into the X-Men in the late 90s. We're going to set this up. Uh, Justin, were you reading the comics at that time? At the time, a little bit. Um, you were like four. <laughs> <laughs> late Damn 90s, it. I would have been early elementary school. I know I am wow. a youngin' here. <laughs> um, I used to get the 10 packs of comics from like the, what, one of those stores down the street. Like, I think it was like the pharmacy. So it. It was like a 10-pack of comics, and speaking of Onslaught, um, one of the first issues I owned was Spider-Man, and it kept making reference to Onslaught, and I'm like, who is this Onslaught? I need to know who this Onslaught is. So, like, uh, one of the first storylines I hunted down was Onslaught, because I was just so intrigued that he came up in this random Spider-Man issue that I got in one of those, like, $3 10-packs of comics that also came, like... It came with, I know my first comic was X-Men 26, Volume 2, Blood Ties. But it also came with, like, Ren and Stimpy and, like, a bunch of other 90s staples. So hearing you talk about Onslaught, it's just like, I see where you're coming from now on that. But I remember (laughs) at the time being so intrigued about who this mystery character was. Keeping in mind, I was like, you know, still pretty young too, and just entertained, you know, wasn't reading too deeply into it. We have only covered Onslaught on my show when we did the trial of Charles Xavier way back at the beginning, but we referred to Onslaught as Professor X and Magneto's rage baby. We're not going to get to him this time. (laughs) Interesting. We'll get there another time. I do want to talk about John Byrne for just a minute. Now on the show, we're going to be doing the hidden years for a while and Byrne uh, this was his love child, just like Alpha Flight was, just like a lot of other things where he took kind of full creative controls. Uh, She-Hulk, uh, he ran for a long time. Uh, John Byrne was born in 1950. He's a legendary comic professional, one of the most respected in his field in many ways. Uh, he worked with Chris Claremont on the X-Men through some of their most famous storylines. I love his long run on the Fantastic Four. We referenced Alpha Flight and She-Hulk. Uh, he's done Batman. He's the co-creator of Kitty Pride, Emma Frost, Sabretooth, Bishop, Omega Red, Rachel Summers, uh, even Amanda Waller, who's a, an incredible queer character at DC. Uh, he gave us North Star. Byrne also returned to Marvel a bunch of times for kind of random projects. Uh, Marvel The Lost Generation, which was covering the years between World War II and Fantastic Four number one. Another one of his books was X-Men Hidden Years, which we're going to talk a lot about uh, today. This is set after the original volume of the X-Men uh, ended at, at number 66. They continued with reprints until they started over with giant size number one. So in the uh, in the year 2000, this book started getting published. 
It ran for 22 issues and it set everything up for giant size. It does a really good job of navigating old continuity, like Angel's evil uncle Dazzler makes an appearance. And there's some interesting stories. Uh, we pick up stories with Sauron and Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and other things that we'll get to as we go. It also covers the X-Men's first meeting with Storm. So there's a lot of really cool content we'll get to, and it fits really nicely into the continuity. He worked really hard on that. And Jason and Gregor, I want to talk to you both about what that was like. However, Byrne is also, despite being widely respected in his field, uh, notoriously publicly recorded as someone who's pretty difficult to work with. He's had many public feuds with a lot of creative professionals, including Claremont. Uh, and I've heard from a lot of people on the show kind of privately that kind of the only way to work with him in some ways was just to not disagree with him. Uh, we always try to find joy in what we're reviewing, and we respect talent, of course. But I do think that that's a big piece of some of the controversy that surrounds this man who is widely talented, uh, but also uh, there's a little bit of struggle behind that. So before we even begin, uh, uh, would anyone like to comment on what we've shared so far about what it was like to work with Byrne? Greg? Well, I, like I said, you know, I don't really, I, no. I, you know, I've worked on a lot of John Byrne stuff, but he has no interest in the part that I do. Um, apparently he likes what I do enough to just leave me alone. <clears throat> you know, because I've done, I did Spider-Man with him, and, and I did some Thor's with him, and I did the Hidden Years with him. You know, and at, at one point, I, I actually asked the editor, I said, "Is is John intentionally drawing this in the most boring manner possible?" <laughs> because you know, when the image guys were doing their thing, they were just trying to create the most exciting image ever, regardless if it told a story mm. that was irrelevant. If they could draw this big, cool, if, you know, if it was a double page spread of cable fucking standing there looking cool, despite <laughs> the fact that that is not the story, uh, people went and the editors took it because they knew the kids would open up and go, whoa, and they'd buy it, you know, and Byrne hated that. He wanted to tell stories. And I felt like sometimes he was intentionally not doing something that could look really cool. Um, because he was, he didn't want it to seem like he was following their little trend. I don't know if that's true, but I, I just kind of felt sometimes like, why did you draw this like this way? This is, you know, this is a dull version of this. You know, you're, you're better than, than that, you know, because nobody's going to say that they're not a John Byrne fan. You know, there's, there's so much of what he he's done. That's just fantastic. And he did a lot of great work on, on the hidden years. Um, you know, He's trying to be his version of Neil Adams, kind of, but not really, because he, he even says in the intro, I'm not Neil Adams. Yeah, we're going to read um, that in a sec. <laughs> um, you know, but, but you know, you were kind of trying to do a little Neil Adams-y thing. But, you know, a lot of it, I just find some of his storytelling very dull. Um, but, you know, I didn't get to work. I didn't really get to work with him. I'm just pondering after after the fact. Um, you know, Tom Palmer, you know, if, if he was around, he could tell you what it was like. But again, Byrne loved Palmer. You know, he loved what Palmer did. So John did his layouts. They went to Tom. Tom did whatever he did. Tom and I discussed what I was going to do. Uh, and then I was kind of doing my version of how I thought Tom would color it, um, which I look back and I go, I should have colored it the way I think it should be colored. Not so much, you know, just thinking about Tom's sense of lighting more because um, I was trying to follow and I was also trying to keep it so it kind of fit in with the way uh, the, the the stories that lead up to this um, were colored. Um, I wanted it to kind of fit into a, like a continuity of, of color 
You did a beautiful um, job, man. But yeah, this but you know, you know, I never really worked with Burn. You know, I mean, it's like I, I got I hired him to do some Marvel Universe figures, and they just came in and they were great, and that was the end of it. You know, Jason, so, how yeah. about you? Um, yeah, I mean, speaking to what Greg said, and first, you know, just to, and I know we've done it a little bit, you know, just to eulogize Tom Palmer a little more. And I feel like I was eulogizing Tom Palmer well before he died in the in the fact that all I've ever had are great things to say about Tom Palmer, um, you know, and certainly he's no longer with us now. But uh, but that has nothing to do with the fact that he what a fucking talent, a legend and a goddamn gentleman like, you know. I don't know if he knew that it was going to be difficult to work with John, but I remember he took me to launch the Society of Illustrators and just listening to him talk was a joy. I probably left 10 times smarter than when I went into that lunch, you know, just about the way of making comics. Um, just a really fantastic guy. And, you know, credit to John, you know, he loved Tom too and loved working with him. So it was, you know, it was just really, that was such a great that, that that's my other than just being able to say look other than the just sort of the sort of nerd thing of saying look my name's on a on a on a, uh, on a john Byrne x-men comic book even though i really didn't have much to do with it getting to know tom even a little bit because i only got to know him a little bit but uh that was a real gift that that book brought to me personally um because so you know, oh i'm sorry go ahead sorry no, no no but working with john i mean look john and I'll, I'll speak to these these ideas about john you introed him for people who so, might not somehow know who he is although that seems unlikely um you know john byrne came into comics when comic book creators weren't famous in the way that they would later become famous you know in the 80s and 90s and he was really one of the first right he and claremont were the first people to sort of become celebrities you know within the creative there's stanley certainly but this idea that was really blown open by the image guys right where they were you know selling millions of books john chris and john came into that but john so john as a creator you know his talent is evident not only by just looking at it and understanding what makes good comic books but also just seeing what he fucking accomplished you know he he was one half of the duo that really not just revitalized X-Men, but made them more than just some tertiary Marvel title, right? They yeah, turned it yeah. into this huge thing. But then he went over to Fantastic Four, and that book had been many things before him, but then he did this incredible iconic run on that. You know, he did this stuff on She-Hulk, which in a lot of ways hadn't been done in contemporary comics at the time, which later on in Deadpool they would do, and that has become this sort of thing, right, that we see, you know, this fourth wall breaking. But John really did it first at Marvel in that way, in a very incredibly powerful way, an incredibly effective way. And then he goes over, you know, throughout that journey, um, he goes over and reinvents Superman, right? You know, Superman, which was then on the cover of Time Magazine, I think, and that was his Superman, and really revitalizing these ideas of Superman, which are carried through through all these medias today, you know, that he wasn't like this nerdy kid that he did, you know, maybe he played football, he did all these other things. So anyway, um, so John Byrne, comes with i'm going to use a chris claremont word a lot of gravitas to the table sure, which is yeah, yeah. i think chris's favorite words um john Byrne carries gravitas you know and then you know and again i don't remember how much of this i'm saying from my own experience i certainly i just had really terrible phone calls with john and you know partially through my own my own mistakes right like i did make a couple of mistakes uh, on hidden years one of them having to do with gregory wright's colors um where there was a there was a character that was supposed to be an albino in Africa, in, in the hidden, in the, in the, the, the Savage Land, I believe. Um, Ar Aria, the winged woman, we'll meet her in this issue. No, there was a dude, right? 
Oh, there was, there was a guy though. I, maybe it was yeah. a different, but there was a guy who was supposed to be an albino, and you know, I got the, I saw the color files come in, and he was just colored as an African American man, right? And John flipped out, and he said the editorial note was right there, and now here's where I got like. So to keep this in mind, normally as an editor, you're sitting with your writer. They'll give you an idea of what they're coming up with. You talk it over. They'll send you over your script or your plot, you know, the Marvel method plot, which is a looser thing. We won't get into that. But so, but with John, what I would get were literally penciled, lettered pages. I would get the full issue penciled and lettered, right? So it doesn't leave a lot of room for input from my part. Sure, but sure. the color note, and I'm not even sure if he sent those to me or if Tom was nice enough to send those to me. So I could see the book before I published it. Um, but the problem was uh, they were photocopied and uh, the, the and, and then shrunk down because I comic he's drawing 11 by 17 and they were shrunk down to eight and a half by 11. So, but the color note had been clipped off because I went back. I was like, how did I miss this? I flipped back through it. And this color note that he showed me was actually cut off the edge. So I don't know if Gregory saw it. And I didn't know to tell Greg to do it differently because I had never seen that note. Sure. Um, that is how I remember it right now. I say that John will say, no, I specifically called you and told you this. Maybe he did, but I specifically remember it this way where his method of working led to this inadvertent mistake. And, you know, I got on this phone call with John and he was so mad at me. Um, but I was also like, you know, there was times I would be like, John, have you ever wanted to like, we've got these great young writers. Have you ever wanted to work with one of these great young writers? They would all die to work with you. And then just like, no. And at one point he said, if I'm going to crash and burn in this industry, I'm going to do it on my own terms. And, you know, and that, that is that is, I think, a literal quote. Um, and, you know, at the time I was like, well, I, I would say to myself, fuck, maybe he's going to crash and burn. I don't think he did in this case. But, uh, you know, um, I, I think of anyone who has the right to do it on their own terms. Absolutely. John Byrne has that right. He's earned it. Um, he earned it then. As I said, even then, as I was desperately trying to have some kind of collaborative relationship with John. And I never got to have it. Um, you know, this guy's going to shit out more about comics in, in an afternoon than I will know my entire life. Right. I, like I am I am way down here on the sort of, you know, on the evolution of comic book knowledge and creativity. And he's way up here. You know, he is Steven Spielberg. He's all these things. Yeah. Um, he's amazing. He's extraordinary. And, you know, few people have the ability to do what he did. Few people have that opportunity or create that. And he did create that. So, yeah, he's he he can be a real son of a bitch. And uh, and but I also feel like there's this fundamental idea that, my God, don't ever get so old in your soul that you can't find the the what because I think youth people are trying new things and and pushing things. And I hope that I personally am the kind of person who always can at least appreciate new music and appreciate new creative voices. And yeah, stuff. Was, yeah. Man, you know, wouldn't that be amazing if he could do that, you know? And I, I most in my personal life and my professional life, most enjoy peeping with working with people who are very collaborative and bring yeah. a lot to the table. But at the same time, we're balancing that by the fact that he's an absolute legend. His pencils are iconic. They're recognized yeah. sight. He's amazing. Let's open the discussion on X-Men hidden years. Number one. I want to actually read. Okay, chat, chat, can I say one more thing? Oh yeah. yeah I, I will. Course. I will say this too. The, you know, some of us critics were looking at Burns' work, and I can't remember what he had been, what he had done before Hidden Years, and it just 
it felt like he was falling off. You know, some of us would say, oh, is he, is he have to pay too much alimony payments? Because he was like lettering, inking, penciling. It just seems like, man, is he just doing too much? Is he just phoning it in? And then I remember the first few pages of Hidden Years that came in and I was like, oh, snap. Like this stuff is really great. And I'll be honest, like I didn't like Tom Palmer for inking that. I really wanted to bring like a slick new, you know, contemporary inker to it. I understood why he brought it, you know, and I understood like, and of course Tom is a genius. I just wanted it to look, I saw like this, I saw like, oh my God, this is as good as Byrne has looked in like a decade. And it wouldn't be cool to bring in one of these like hot inkers to like really make it like fresh and, you know, and, but that was, that was me, you know, talking everything. Of course, Tom's amazing. But uh, but yeah, so it was so exciting to see his pencils coming through because they were as good as Bernard looked in a long time. And, you know, God damn it. Fuck dumb Jason Liebig. That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. You know? so, um, it's John freaking Bird. OK, carry on. So on the final page of X-Men, The Hidden Years, number one, Bern gives us a text piece. And I'm going to read it out loud really quickly to intro this book. It was a thunderclap. No, it was a nuclear blast. It swept across the comic book industry like a tidal wave, a hurricane, an earthquake. In other words, people sat up and took notice. What was it? X-Men number 56. No, not the current series, the original, still more than 50 issues away from having Uncanny before an, uh, become an official part of its name. It was written by Roy Thomas and illustrated by a pair of relative newcomers, Neil Adams and Tom Palmer. And it was in one fell swoop a revolution, and not a revolution in the making, a revolution done, complete, presented as a fait accompli in a single issue. Comics would never be the same again. Because of that issue, and the that work, and the effect it had on generations of comic book writers and artists that followed. So a confession, I am not Neil Adams. That might seem like an odd thing I need to say after nearly 25 years in the business and with a reputation at least as firmly established as was Neil's, low these many years ago when he was Mr. X-Men. But I do feel the need to say it, if for no other reason than that Neil, in what turned out to be a relatively short tenure on the original X-Men book, brought such a distinctive hand to the job, created such a definitive vision of these characters and those issues that anything I do here will perforce be compared to what he did 30 years ago. The comparison will be both fair and unfair. After all, I'm presuming to feel some awfully big shoes here. Neil and Roy, with contrib contributions by Denny O'Neill, Don Heck, and Sal Buscema, took the X-Men to new heights of glory, and for me, to come along now, more than a quarter of a century later, and essentially say, and this is what happened next, smacks of hubris. But on the other hand, there is another period of X-Men history which is cited with as much awe and fervor as are the Thomas Adams years, and those are uh, three years or so when Chris Claremont and I worked on the book. So really, who better to try to fill the gap left by Neil and Roy when the book went to reprint status due to low sales? Which brings me to my next confession, I'm not John Byrne. Not the John Byrne who drew the uh, adventures of the X-Men in the late 1970s anyway. That was a different John Byrne. Oh sure, he lived in the same body I live in, though it was newer and still under warranty, and he had the same love for these characters, but he was younger. And in that youth was the shaping of different attitudes, different ideas, approaches, goals. When he sat down to draw a page, he was struggling with different demons than the ones I face today at the drawing board. He was still trying to figure out how to uh, how to do it. Me, I know how to do it. Now I'm trying to figure out how to do it better. I say all this for a simple reason. Those of you who come to this book expecting a seamless continuation of the work created by Neil and Roy will almost certainly be disappointed to some degree. Those of you who come here expecting something closely akin to the work created by myself the last time I was an artist on the X-Men will also not find what you're looking for. Not quite. Times change, people change, the demands of the media change. If I were to try to recreate what Neil and Roy did, I would most likely fail. And if I succeeded, 
there's little doubt that the world would seem the the work would seem hopelessly dated. Likewise, if I somehow attempted to press the rewind button on my career and take myself back to the artist I was 20 years ago, I would also fail. And if I did not, you might see all the weaknesses that the John Byrne legend has glossed over in the years since I produced that work. Hidden Years is intended to represent the lost adventures of the X-Men during the period of their original series, number 67 through 93, uh, that the book was a reprint title. It is being done, however, in full awareness of the fact that it is not 1970, not for us, and with the applic uh, application of Marvel time, not for the characters either. And the X-Men and the company have come a long way since then. So is the audience. So sit back, relax. And I think I can pretty much guarantee a fun ride, just a different ride from the last couple of times. Oh, and I'm not Tom Palmer either, but it turns out I don't have to be. John Byrne, Fairfield, Connecticut. Uh, this is really brilliant for a number of reasons. And we're, we're going to talk more about Byrne and this work as we go through this series a little at a time on this show. But one of the important things to start with is recognizing that starting this book required reading all of the 60s stuff, being aware of what was left, being aware of what came next, and setting everything in between. So we can take the Jean Grey as an example from the 60s, who was not portrayed in a very positive light very often. And we know this character becomes the Phoenix. We know what she's capable of. And now we can add that back. Now, the X-Men's future time travel story would come years after this. It's another kind of version of taking the original characters and putting them in a different way. That's a Bendis story. Uh, but we, uh, we, we have covered that a little on the show. But this is a pretty good series. They do a good job of setting it up and leaving the characters where they needed to be next. Uh, so let's begin with that. Do we have any comments? Um, I mean, John said it really well. He, you know, he anticipated very thoughtfully the, all the ideas and, you know, and I think he came at it very, you know, very well. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, you're reading that out loud. It's it's very well thought and it's and it's all true. You know, that, that's a very good creative just for anybody, for any creative, you know, who wants to do what they do. I mean, yeah, that's great. Any artist, musician, artist, you know, actor could probably look at the exact same thing and think the same ways. I think it's great stuff. So it's good at setting the expectation for what you're going to get. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So X-Men The Hidden Years was released in late 1999. John Byrne is the writer, the penciler, and the letterer. Tom Palmer, the legendary inker, is back. My friend Gregory Wright of Silver Sable fame is the colorist. And the editor is my new friend, Jason Liebig. Uh, so we're going to start with a five-page intro that starts this book. It's called Test to Destruction. And these five pages were originally printed in the back of X-Men Volume 2, number 94, as a prequel in order to generate interest in the Hidden Years series. Uh, when you open the book, it starts with a cover... Professor X is just back from the dead after the whole thing with the Xenox, and then he got revived by the Incredible Hulk's exhaustion gamma device, which we've talked about on the show already. A beautiful, beautiful cover, beautifully colored. Uh, the X-Men are rushing into battle in their old uh, costumes that were in existence at the end of the title. And again, those are the current space we're in on the show. Uh, Greg, will you take those first, I said Greg, excuse me, Jason, will you take those first five pages and tell us a little bit about what happens at the beginning of the book? Yes. Um, again, gosh, beautiful cover. It was so good. And so, yeah, we've got our little, you know, our little prologue here taken from the X-Men insert. And it starts out with them sort of catching up, right? They're, they're, they're looking at this, this uh, pre-Thunderjet, you know, thing, this vehicle they got from a Sentinel, if I recall. And uh, it's a Sentinel vehicle. And Professor X is being very old school you know just like my students you know it's like basically the, the, there's this subtle implication that they're all sort of stupid right they're all idiots 
Um, but he comes at them. And it's like, you need to do this. You need to do this. So he's very, you know, he's very much giving orders. And it's like, did you check for traps? Because it was a Sentinel thing, you know, this, and it's these very sort of 60s. I do. Are there booby traps? Are there, you know, and so and immediately, almost immediately he establishes that, look, these X-Men are not the kids, these simple teenagers, you know, these innocent teenagers that the, the, the professor last dealt with when they thought he died. They've been through a lot. And John does a really good job of establishing um, this sort of tension between them, right? Bobby, especially Iceman, you know, Bobby Drake is like, what, what, you know, why is he treating us like I'm 15 again? Or maybe he was even supposed to be 16 here. I don't know. But like he's, they're very, there's very much a resistance to the professor sort of stepping back into this role because they've been, you know, to their credit, they've been doing it on their own. So screw you, Baldy, you know, like coming in and trying to tell me how to do things. But so he does that, you know, and so there's tension there. There's tension with uh, Warren, you know, there's tension with them. But, you know, um, Cyclops, you know, Scott is trying to he's trying to toe the company line, trying to keep people trying to be a leader. And he's being a leader. He's trying to keep he's like, listen, he's back. We're going to figure this out. And then immediately um, we break through and it's like this is John's opportunity to draw all these characters. Um, immediately Magneto's on the scene. Right. He was like, what the hell? How did how's the Magneto get here? You know, we're. We're at the school. So Magneto shows up and starts off with his business. You know, what does he say? Oh, you know, it's like, oh, you know, it's like, yeah, but, but he is dead. They thought he was dead at the time. And he kind of was, he shows up as a ghost later. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but Magneto shows up and he's like, ah, so you thought. And then the blob shows up. It's like the brotherhood of evil mutants, you know, then the toad shows up and it's amazing. And, you know, and all these people start showing up and then juggernaut, you know, is tearing through. And so there's this big battle and it's just, it's like, what, the hell is going on the x-men are fighting it's a great and look it's a great opportunity and again keep in mind that this was this sort of selling piece right it was on the back of what just x-men 94 i think this is a great opportunity for john to get in there and draw these characters that fans want to see john draw um the villains so you're bringing in all these iconic villains right the marquee villains all in just a few pages and so you get in there and then you know and then you sort of saw this the side thing with gene talking you know, telepathically talking to Professor X, why are you doing this? This isn't right. And you're like, well, what is she talking about? And uh, and so, no, she's like, use your powers, student girl, you know, use your powers on, on the blob. And, uh, you know, because he's not having it. He doesn't want to talk to her about what's really going on. So she uses them. The blob falls over. You know, they're like Magneto's now saying, "Now oh, you can't use your te your telepathy is not powerful enough to control my my powers of magnetism. You know, so he's throwing people around. It's it's perilous, right? This is a perilous moment for the X-Men. And, uh, and at a certain point, someone makes a move. I think maybe Cyclops figures out what's going on. And he just stands there and takes a shot, takes a punch from a uh, juggernaut. It goes right through him. And then suddenly they realize, oh, wait, this is all just Professor X mentally fucking with us and putting all these villains in our head. So this is all in our head. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, I just wanted you all to be... It's like Michael Scott from The Office. I wanted you all to be prepared. <laughs> you know, it's like, what are you doing? You're treating us like assholes. They don't actually say that, but that's really how they feel. And it is, it's kind of rude, you know, and it's it's not cool. And then, of course, Bobby there, who's already super mad at, uh, you know, he's already super mad at the professor for treating him like this, making him like, look, you're giving these people heart attacks. All these villains are showing up at the school. And then uh, who is it shows up? Uh, Havoc shows up with, uh, what is it? Lorna, Lorna, yeah. Yeah, Lorna, Lorna, yeah. So the girl he sort of has a thing for, and so it's like doubling down. So Bobby's just like, this day sucks. I'm <clears> out. <throat> Screw you guys. I'm going home. And he gets out of there. And, you know, and and 
of course, Cyclops, he's trying to manage all this, you know, because it's like, I, because this professor seems to be micromanaging to bring it back to that. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a bummer for these guys, these poor kids, you know, it's like, it's bad enough they have to fight these villains for real. Now the professor is making them pretend fight them, you know, without them knowing it. That's the thing. They weren't in on the gag. So it's like, if you don't like being pranked, and I do not like being pranked, um, you know, this is a, this is a pretty rough thing to do to your students, especially when you're the one coming back in. I know your name's on the school and we're named after you kind of, <laughs> but you know, it's just like, you're the person who was gone. You, you left, right. And you didn't tell us that you were still alive. Now you're coming back and now you're just going to be an asshole to us. That's, that's pretty messed up. And that is really, you know, and again, to John's credit, boy, what a great way to set this up. You've got all this tension and that's great storytelling. Right. So it's like, yeah, the X-Men, but it's like you have to make your characters miserable. And so John does a really good job of setting up the hidden years with all this tension. And so it's like, yeah, that this is this is this is the ride you're going to go on. It's like it's the X-Men, you know, and love. But look, uh, look at all this delicious tension going on. You know, Bobby wants to leave before the first issue. Right. We know <laughs> he doesn't leave because, you know, he shows up later. But uh, but Bobby, uh, Bobby grabbing Lorna. He's like, come on, baby, let's you and me go take a walk. And she's like, uh, no, Alex and I have plans. And he, he goes, well, doesn't that just put the cream on the cupcake? Which is so funny because Bobby's gay. Just, right now, yeah, he would ultimately, you know, ultimately be revealed, right? You know, so, but Bobby didn't know that at the time. He didn't realize, but you know, no. So it's like, but it's also, I love the sort of, you know, John and John says it in that sort of statement he made, that mission statement that, you know, he's trying to address the era it's in. So there's a little bit of that sort of, you know, in that line, especially that little interaction, it's a bit Riverdale, you know, it's like, hey, lady, you know, it's like, I thought we were a thing, you know, <laughs> I thought we were going steady. And, uh, but so, you know, and it's like, it's, I think it's just really, really good. And, uh, I wish I had anything to do with it. It's, <laughs> it's really, it's really pretty. And it's such a, it's such yes. a the new promo text at the beginning of the book, they were born mutants possessing powers of a genetic origin, which made them outcasts of society. But one man, professor Charles Xavier brought them together to learn to use their unique gifts in the service of a world that hates and fears them. Stan Lee presents X-Men, the hidden years. We also see a very small dedication to uh, the memory of John Broom on the first page. John was a, a legendary contemporary comic book creator of Gil Kane over at DC who died right around the time this issue was published. So it looks like uh, like John Byrne threw that in. Um, I'm going to cover the next session quickly. It's called Epilogue. We get a, a promo, and again, this sets it very firmly in the 90s, before Onslaught, before Apocalypse before Phoenix and the tragedy of Dark Phoenix, before a man called Beast came to more closely resemble his name. So this is before Beast is blue, which would have surprised people in the 90s maybe. Or a high-flying angel became a razor-winged tool of the enemy. Before a wary world came to know the X-Men as an international band of exotic adventurers, they were a handful of troubled teenagers and one man with a dream. And then uh, Byrne takes us right back to X-Men 66, where everything ends. He re he revisits the uh, the X-Men's battle with the Hulk, Xavier being in a coma. He throws in a little Savage Land stuff. And then we start the story three days after what Jason just uh, uh, reviewed in, uh, in a new story now called Prologue. Uh, Bobby is quitting the X-Men. And we are led to believe it's because Xavier's being bossy. And how could Bobby possibly trust Xavier and Gene after they lied to him? Because Gene knew about Xavier being alive. Uh, but more subtly, it seems like he's just mad because Lorna's interested in Alex. And I don't know if, if Byrne was in on the joke that Bobby was gay, but I think it's hilarious. Uh, Gene notes out loud, 
or uh, I can see the reason in my mind more clearly than you could ever say it, Bobby, but you're wrong to feel that way, which is a very much a hint of like, I know you're gay, bro, and it's all right, but he's still going to storm <laughs> off because he's not going to come out for another 10 years. Uh, Xavier summons the team. He realizes that Bobby is missing, but he's like, what the fuck? Let's, who cares? We're going to go ahead. He's being super bossy. Everyone's like, are you actually okay? And then he invades their thoughts and he warns Havoc and Lorna that this might be... A- <laughs> I might uh, I might uh, leave you with a headache after this. In other words, like I'm going to pe- penetrate your minds and I probably should have used lube is like very much. The- <laughs> Man. Uh, and then we see a recap of many of their adventures. And just because it brings me with uh, full of joy, I'm going to take a couple minutes here really quickly because this recaps everything that happened in the 60s, which we've covered on my show slowly and painstakingly over the last few years. Uh, so the text here says, it begins. Slowly, the most powerful mutant brain on Earth peels away the layers of memory in each of the X-Men's minds until he looks upon a scene he has not previously witnessed with his own eyes. The X-Men's battle with the subterranean monster called Grotesque. He sees the moment of his own death, knowing as the X-Men now know that it was not Charles Xavier who died that day, but a biomorph known as the Changeling. A man dying of cancer who sought to redeem himself before his life ended. Now Xavier sees events in which he had no direct hand. He sees Bobby Drake's first encounter with a green-haired girl named Lorna Dane and sees that meeting invaded by the evil mutant Mesmero. With mingled shock and horror, Xavier sees that Mesmero was in the employ of the X-Men's most powerful enemy, Magneto, except it was a robot, who now claimed to be the father of Lorna Dane. The X-Men escape that encounter, but there are more surprises as Scott Summers makes them at last privy to a secret Xavier has allowed him to keep, which is fascinating on its own the existence of his brother, Alex. The joy of that family reunion is short-lived, however, as Alex Summers is soon taken prisoner by a madman called the Living Pharaoh. In some as yet not understood way, it was Mr. Sinister, Alex Summers and the Pharaoh were linked. And when the Pharaoh sealed off Alex from the solar rays, which granted both their power, the Pharaoh was reborn as the living monolith. From Alex Summers' own mind, Charles Xavier extracts the details of his ordeal. He sees him escape from the monolith, only to find he has leapt from a frying pan to even more dangerous fire. Long believed by the X-Men to be defunct, the mutant hunting sentinels return. Xavier is stunned to learn his nemesis, Bolivar Trask, creator of the original sentinels, had a son, the equally obsessed Lawrence, who had created his own race of robots to rid the world of the threat of mutant kind. Xavier makes a mental note to commend Cyclops for his handling of the dire situation, for it is Scott Summers who tricked the sentinels into hurling themselves into the heart of the very sun itself in a vain effort to end the source of all mutation on Earth. But Xavier notes also to give Cyclops a dozen demerits as he sees the X-Men seek out his former colleague, researcher Carl Lycos, in an effort to help Alex Summers control his nearly limitless power. But Xavier also chides himself, since he knows the X-Men acted in what seemed to them a logical fashion, lacking the knowledge that Xavier and Lycos had drifted apart because of Xavier's discovery that Lycos was himself something more than human a non-mutant variant who drains power from the unsuspecting Alex to become the horror called Sauron. Saddened by the sight, <clears throat> Xavier then sees Carl Lycos hurl himself into an Antarctic abyss desperate uh, in a last desperate effort to save the woman he loves from the evil of Sauron. Following to retrieve the corpse of Lycos, they hope to find at the bottom of the crevice, the X-Men instead find themselves in the prehistoric jungle of the Savage Land, face to face with its lord and master, Kesar. He, it is here the X-Men make the most chilling discovery since Xavier's supposed death. 
Magneto, the greatest of evil mutants, has made a lair for himself in the heart of Kassar's kingdom. His magnetic powers fading, Magneto has sought to rekindle them, but he has failed, and Xavier is relieved as the X-Men's memories show him what must surely be the final demise of their most famous, most dangerous foe. What follows seems almost trivial in comparison, as Xavier witnesses the X-Men's encounter with an angry young Japanese mutant who has dubbed himself Sunfire. The encounter peacefully resolved, Xavier makes a note to him himself to investigate Sunfire as a potential recruit. The X-Men return to their Westchester mansion for yet another surprise, the discovery that their beloved mentor did not die those long months passed in the tunnels under Manhattan, that instead he had been closeted away, deep in the sub-basements of the mansion, preparing the only defense he believes possible against the invading armada of the aliens and ox. Which brings the X-Men's leader fully up to date. <clears throat> Carefully, he relinquishes the control he has on their minds. And I know you guys are really sick of me hearing me read at this point, so my apologies. But that's a really fascinating recap of the latter half of the X-Men 60s stuff. Uh, Lorna is like, well, that was strange. I need to go take a shower now, which she literally says after Xavier's been in her head. <laughs> and then Xavier's like, fuck you guys. You left Magneto in the Savage Land. You don't know he's dead. Uh, I'll give you 20 demerits unless you go find his corpse right now, which kind of sets up the whole story. We got this <clears throat> giant prologue before we get into the beat of the issue. And I tried to cover that really quickly. How are you guys all doing? <laughs> I love I love Professor X just giving out demerits. It's so ridiculous and, you know, and perfect, right? You know, he's such a jerk. Forcing himself into people's minds. Oh, you know, I mean, look, you know, hashtag me too. Um, this, you know, <laughs> like she's going to need to take a shower. I mean, you know, it's, it's getting a little, it's getting a little rust rough here. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's great. You know, and I like, like, God damn you, professor X, man, you, you weren't there. You can't give demerits for that. But then also it's like <clears> this <throat> thing. You guys didn't check the body, you know, <laughs> Which that's the are. part that's get that's the part that gets me is like you didn't go back for a body like I, why I, <laughs> I feel like that's the the conceit of almost every piece of fiction it's like just make sure they're dead and I like the professor brought that up you know it's like did you did you think about checking the body it's like let me tell you what the X Men never check the body. <laughs> The art in this is gorgeous. The colors are oh. gorgeous. It's so pretty. Uh, Gregory, take us through the next part of the story. Uh, it's called Once More in, or excuse me, Once More the Savage Land. Greg, though, the colors were better before. I know, they, they were. It, yeah. You know, what's what's fun today is when I color stuff, I send the, the stuff to the artist and then we have a conversation just to avoid things like, you know, um, a character being miscolored because i didn't necessarily get the note <clears throat> which um isn't that a big deal when when you're gonna you know like the thing i do with graham i send him the stuff and I, I i i've taught him you need to send me the plot because i don't know what the hell is going on on this page because there's no lettering um but you know i mean we're very in sync but it's every once in a while it's something really funny <clears throat> that he wanted a certain thing i'm like okay that's not a problem because I've done everything on layers. But when we were doing this, you get the guides. They go to wherever. Maybe you had a chance to actually look to see if they uh, colored it correctly. Maybe they actually would make a correction. You know, so there's, you know, and there's stuff that it it seemed like it would work on my guide. where I Because, you know, like I hate the very first page. Once more into the savage land. I can't read it because of the way the clouds look. <clears throat> The way I had it, I thought it was going to print was very different than this. So 
you know, Jason could have looked at it and said, that doesn't fucking work and, and changed it if he had time. But the likelihood is it came back. He might have asked for a bunch of corrections. They never got made. And then the book gets printed. And by the time that you see it, you've already you're, you've got five other projects that you're working on. So, it's yeah, kind I of, mean. Uh, to, to your point, yeah. So I would see, this is the tricky part about so much of this. You see like a digital file and, uh, you know, and I don't need to tell Greg about this, but the, for someone out there, and it's probably a little different now just because of the way the books are printed, but you would get a digital file and it looks great on the digital file. There's, you know, and so it, because it's being lit up and then you found out, you know, not that we were printing necessarily a newsprint at this point. But um, but you would print then on whatever it would print and things would just become oversaturated and stuff. And, you know, your last check before publication is called a blue book. So it's like you're not even seeing the colors in that. Right. And that's just you're checking for trapping for, you know, for plates that are missing and lettering. Anyway, I know we've I know we've segued off here, but uh, but it's a great it's a great point of craft. But, you know, I can't not, you know, when I every time I look at this page, I just go why did it come out like that? You know, it's like, what was I thinking? And, you know, and I was, well, you know, if I had seen a proof, I would have said, Oh, let's do it. I would have just redone the sky, but you, you know, now you can, but back then, you know, you were kind of stuck. You, so you really had to try to, you know, color, make it, make it like bad separator proof. Yeah. Um, and an anecdote of the time is that Marvel. Yeah. I think I mentioned earlier, Marvel made a lot of bad deals at the time. We had a oh deal. God with an Irish color house called Graphic Colorworks. Look at me, I've got receipts. <laughs> I remember the name. I can't believe I remember that. I remember. Um, but so, yeah, Graphic Colorworks. And, you know, they look, they were fine people, but they were bringing people in, you know, into sort of like an assembly line to do the digital separation colors. So we have these artists that are talented. They understand the books and they're doing the coloring like Greg, you know, and so they're coming on and they know, but then you're handing them off to these people that are at best technicians. And, you know, technicians of what at the time was still a very emerging field, this digital coloring world. And so um, and why did not why did this book not get the, you know, the ability for Greg to do a direct, you know, a direct coloring to steps and all that stuff? Because we could only they graphic colors had to have like 90 percent of our line. Yeah. So you could only pick you could, you know, like like Uncanny X-Men and X-Men, the top two top selling books in the business got. Like to go to liquid color, you know, and and stuff, you know, Christian Leitner and those guys, but uh, but you know, everybody had to make you like there was this terrible thing. It's just like, well, you know, we got to go. These books got to go to Graphic Color Works, and it was very painful, and uh, there were a lot of bad things about it. And then when things like Heroes are born, they they actually peeled off that percentage even more because none of their books went to Graphic right. Color. So What's anyway, worse though is the. They never got to have enough time to actually do the proper the separations properly. So even if your book was on time, it got oh. shoved to the back of the pile so that all the other books got done. So everybody's books were separated basically in a day by 22 different people. And whatever they got done, that's what they sent out. Because there, there are pages uh, in here when I saw them, I couldn't believe it because, you know, three-fourths of all of the detail that I put in, missing. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's very much a shame. It's you know, and then there are some pages that look great. You know, um, anyway, so once more into the Savage Land begins with um, the X Men feeling you know very psychically spanked um, because they you know <laughs> you know and and they're like, dude, we're like graduates and adults, and you know this isn't right, and yet they go, 
Oh, we forgot to mention earlier, they they stole a ship from the Sentinels. So that's what they're flying to the Savage Land in the Sentinel ship, which is amazing. (laughs) It's kind of cool. You know, and then and then, of course, you get more of the uh, I like the Riverdale drama here, you know, (laughs) know, with Bobby and uh, Lorna and what's his face. And and thank goodness, Professor X, you know, uh, jumps back in to spank them again. You know, he's ashamed of everybody, you know, apparently, you know, that that's his new thing is mean dad. Um, you know, and, and it's funny because I, I always kind of, you know, it's like I, I now that I go back at these, I wonder, you know, did was Byrne aware that Bobby was gay or not? You know, I don't know, you know, or he may have decided, no, he's not. I'm John Byrne. I'll, I'll write it the way I want. Who knows? I don't know. I can't remember where we were with the character at that point. I, I don't I don't remember, you know, but, you know, Byrne doesn't necessarily want to play whatever everybody else was had decided. You know, some know. some Likes writers, some writers were in on the joke and some writers were not, is what okay. I've learned. Yeah. Well, Byrne didn't really have much of a sense of humor. So, you know, he thinks I, I really don't let this sequence kind of bothers me, you know, so I'm going to skip over after he, he spanks them and get back to the Savage Lane because Savage, yeah. Savage Lane is just the coolest place. Um, you know, so they they're getting to the savage land, and of course, you know, nothing quite goes as way it's way it's planned. Even though you get these fantastic shots of these dinosaurs, mm. oh, look at the dinosaurs! It's so cool. Love the dinosaurs uh, as they're trying to land the, the land. Of course, they can't find a place to land. So uh, I think this is pretty clever. Uh, Scott decides he's just going to laser blast it with his eyes uh, a bunch of the rainforest, uh, destroying you know I don't know how many animals and important flowers and things that we need for medicine um you know that was kind of kind of clever of of him uh you know once they land uh finally you know it seems like you know i think john must have loved drawing this ship because it, it's just there's a whole page of just a ship you know crashing um and uh, somehow so Jean saves them yeah let's let justin take those last couple pages after they crash the ship what happens justin so after they crash the ship, Angel flies out and lands to make sure the rest of the team is okay. Uh, Scott and Beast are fine, although Jean appears to be unconscious as she used her telekinesis to cushion the blow when they crash land into the Savage Land. They do talk about how they um, will give Jean some time to recover before they're approached by some Savage Land locals. Scott and Warren approach them and tell them, hey, we come in peace. They put up their shields and fire darts at them, where at that point, Beast goes in for the attack because being bulkier and a bit thicker, having more muscle mass, he's able to metabolize the darts or rather the venoms in the darts a little bit quicker before they finally knock him unconscious and this is part of his dialogue everyone he's like i have more muscle mass than everyone else <laughs> way to brag well, you used to write that way to to explain what, how things were possible <laughs> you had yeah. some of this you know what nobody would write that today because everybody wants to write really natural dialogue but you know it was trying to explain what was going on so you know the beast was always uh, you know, flowery uh, with his dialogue, so it kind of works for him. But it's just, it is sort of funny though when you read it. It's like, what? Well, yeah, and it was if you know, and again, if 
if this was someone's first comic, if they didn't know who any of these characters were, you could come into it and know exactly who they were right. with just a little bit of hitting those notes. It does feel a bit reminiscent of the Claremont era where there was a bit of that describing everything that's happening, which, you know, <clears throat> you don't see that a lot nowadays. Yeah, but Claremont very- was really good at it. Very good point. Yeah, and Claremont, I think when he came back to the X-Men, he endeavored to do it. I I think his, I feel like he may have done it, done it maybe, a, I don't want to say instinctively, but like I feel like when he came back to the X-Men in the later 90s to do, to do a run for a little bit, I feel like he did it more of like a rule, and I think maybe it lost some of its uh, energy, you know, but I think it's, to to Greg's point, you know, writers don't want to do that. They want it. They want it more naturalistic and everything. And uh, I just think really great writing finds ways to educate you. Certainly, this kind of thing. Uh, one of my favorite moments was watching Friends. Oh, I bring that show up again. Jesus, um, <laughs> I'm such a white woman. Um, like from the nineties. But I said there, there's a little ninety second thing in sitcoms where before they go to the first commercial break, where they have a little gag, right? And I said. What amazed me about watching it, because I was working on the X-Men at the time, and I and I I think I stopped and I said, look at this. I said, in this 90 seconds, if you've never, if you've never seen Friends, I think it was like the fourth or fifth season of the show, whatever it was. And I said, in that 90 second little intro reel, I've learned that Chandler's having a secret relationship with Monica, that Joey's the only one who knows, that Joey's kind of dumb, that Chandler's kind of sarcastic, that this is the brother, and the brother doesn't know, that Ross doesn't know what's going on, and, and all this stuff happens. You think you're just watching a couple of jokes, but you've actually been given all this information, right? If you've never seen Friends, you know who all the relationships are, you, you get actually like 11 different beats and 11 different <clears throat> connections all within that, and that's what Byrne is, of course, endeavoring to do when he mentions, oh, my, you know, my my muscle structure and all this stuff. It's really great. And it is and it is something, you know, Greg, something we talked about so much in editorial because the books in general had become so serpentine. So, you know, in many ways, you, you just couldn't get into them. If you were a new reader, you needed to read so much. So it was something, you know, at one point we did gatefold covers. And the gatefolds unfolded and it was this whole thing. The gatefold will will be all that. So it's like, read the gatefold. That's like, if you've never, if you've never read the book, the gatefold will bring you in, you know, so you can write more naturalistic. Creative exposition. Yeah, no, but it was very much, this was very much on our minds in this period of, of Marvel editorial and, and, you know, and trying to figure out ways to make the books accessible. And so my apologies, but that's, that's. These are things we tried to do. No, it's great. We were always told every, every comic is somebody's first comic. Mm-hmm. No, that is, that's, I don't know and who you want to keep Stan them reading it. And if they go, what the yeah. hell's going on? They're done. Yeah, no, it's true. Or, you know, you needed a friend to like guide you in and like, okay, this is what's going on. And back then, unlike now, like you don't have Wikipedia to go, re- you know, you, or the Marvel Universe, you might've had the Marvel Universe, but you didn't have Wikipedia. Now, like if I go to see a movie, I haven't seen the, the other movies. I'll just go to Wikipedia and say, what's, what's happened up till now? Um, Yeah, anyway. Fascinating. Uh, Justin, how does the book end? Well, it's one of those things, too, kind of getting back to that exposition a little bit, um, where if if it doesn't necessarily click with you the first time and you read back, it's like, oh, I'm I'm actually getting what's going on here, you know? Yeah. But um, after Beast is knocked out, finally, the X-Men are carried off to um, where the local... Savage Land people are staying, so they're looks like they're huts, and the head of the tribe was um, explaining Isn't to the, the X Men that to be the albino. 
No, I don't think so. I think that's in a future issue. Yeah, that's these, okay. guys, these guys are in the book for a little something. while. They're in the Savage Land for a few minutes. But basically, um, they explained to the X-Men that they just wanted to make sure, you know, that they were safe, wanted to see who they were, you know, make sure that who they were dealing with was, you know, someone safe to deal with, and allude to the fact that Jean Grey has perished. Cyclops, or Scott, is upset, and they open a curtain to Jean Grey's costume laying on the what appears to be a bed. Um, after that, it pans to a tower with Amphibious hopping up, and... I love Amphibious. <laughs> I was really excited to see him again, just because he is a little underrated. Well, just the Savage Land mutates in general. But um, Amphibious, he calls to this master, who is revealed to be a hologram of Magneto at the end, claiming that the X-Men murdered him, where the issue then ends. So a couple reminders, Magneto can astrally project back in the 60s. We don't quite know how because magnets don't work that way. But for the next few issues, we get the idea that it's the ghost of Magneto. It's really his astral projection. He's still in his base in the Savage Land. We also, uh, last time we saw Amphibious, he had been devolved back into a caveman. And Magneto mentions that he he gave him his powers back here. Um, I also wanted to step back earlier. There, there's a five-page sequence of Iceman just being an asshole he storms in on uh, Havoc and Lorna, who were talking about how intense Professor X is. And he's like, Lorna, I'm going to give you a chance to come to your senses, a chance to blow this nut house and come with me. And Alex is like, no. And, and he's, they, they, I don't know. He provokes the fight. Alex loses control of his powers. Bobby ices up. They are, they're tossing puns at each other. And a, a spare piece of ice like hits Lorna in the head and she's pissed. And this is like the most she's ever had to do in the comic book. She never got any time in the 60s books. But Lorna with like a bruise on her head, she says, you never mean to hurt people, but you always do. And don't baby me, Bobby. I'm not your girlfriend. I never said I was. I never said I would be. Uh, so this is like an infamous relationship in the X-Men. He's super gay. He storms off, especially when Professor X is a jerk again. There's a lot of great character moments that kind of build these characters up. Uh, and it's it's a pretty fun book overall. It's also important to remind people sometimes the Savage Land is full of tribes of people that have like a rich history and a kind of a complex society. We're going to get more of Magneto and Sauron and the tribesmen and the Savage Land mutates in the coming books. Uh, and that's where we're going to go in our next show. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. We went a little over time. I hope that was okay with everybody. But this was a ton of fun to revisit. Uh, this is very much like a How the Sausage Was Made episode. Uh, what was it like for you guys to revisit this as we're kind of sharing our final thoughts? Uh, this was fun. Um, you know, I always say, like, I think when you invited us onto this, I was like, please, please, let's make sure Greg's there because I've forgotten so much. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and... And no, this is really fun to read back over this. You know, that that page where it's revealed that Jean has entered the land of the dead and they just see her empty costume there, um, laying there. It's such a dramatic, great, uh, you know, it uh, it is Neil Am Neil Adamsy to me because it would make that alone would make a great cover, like yeah. a great Neil Adams cover where you're like, what the fuck is this? You know, it's like that was like a great Neil Adams cover where you looked at it and you're like, oh my god, I have to read this comic because what is this? So I feel like that right there is a great cover image. Um, and it would have been if this were a book in the sixties, but, uh, 
but no, it's fun. It was, uh, you know, it's, it's look, this is just what, like a wild book, right? Like this was burned back on the X-Men and, uh, you know, and I, I like to think I was pretty good about smelling the roses back then about realizing how cool and special it was. And I think I did, but it was just, it was really fun personally for me to just look back and say, Hey, look, maybe I didn't really get to have much of a hand in this, but you know, I got to get John Byrne to be mad at me and dislike me. And well, that's <laughs> almost as much fun as getting to have a real conversation with him. And, uh, but no, it was great to work on this book and, uh, and get to help bring it to life. And, you know, it was, it was cool. It was just, uh, it was really fun to, to look back on. So yeah, this, so this book, was... this book majorly accomplishes three things. It sets up what the premise of the book is. It recaps all of the stuff you needed from the sixties while giving you more character motivation. And it launches you into a new plot line, which is exactly what it promised to do. And it's, a, it's yeah. a pretty fun ride from here. Uh, Gregory, what was it like for you to revisit this? Well, you know, the most fun is listening to Jason talk about all the stories that's going on for with him back then that I, I really didn't know because we, you know, we didn't really get to chat very much. So, you know, knowing where his head was like, man, it's it's too bad we didn't get to chat more because, uh. well, I, I probably, I might've got him in even more trouble because, um, <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he, he feeds into, you know, my same sensibility of why should I keep my mouth shut, you know, um, because I would get in trouble, you know, I got tossed out of many meetings, you know, you know, I had, you know, because executives were saying, well, I don't understand why we can't just publish the same comic over and over, you know, kind of, I said, because it's not a fucking Oreo mm. asshole, yeah. uh, you know, or, or, you know, and, you know, and I, you know, and I would be, you know, asked to leave the room because, you know, I, I would, you know, I, I, I just couldn't stop because if it didn't like it, I couldn't stop. So, you know, hearing Jason, it's like, oh man, we would, we would have been really, you know, fun together back then. We would have been fired so fast. So yeah, much right, faster. yeah, it's too fast. <laughs> but, you know, for me, you know, I'm looking back at it because most of the work I did was, you know, talking with Tom Palmer all the time. And it, it kind of makes me sad, you know, because, you know, it's like Jason said, you know, there's few guys that are just as good human beings as Tom Palmer. Um, and, you know, that that's that has nothing to do with he's also one of the most amazing artists ever. Um so, you know, it's it's sort of an honor to get to work with him. It's more of an honor that he asked me to to work on this stuff with him and that, you know, he liked what I was doing. Um, but it, it kind of reminded me of, you know, this was a, a time when, you know, Tom and I were on the phone two or three times a week for, you know, and when you talk to Tom Palmer, you would talk for a couple hours. Um, and, it, it you know, you talk about the work a little bit and then you would start talking about personal stuff and, you know, artists that you liked. Um, and you know it's funny, he he took people he took people to the Society of Illustrators for lunch. He's the the the, the freelancer. We're supposed to take him to lunch, but he yeah. wouldn't have it most of the time. He would oh no 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 I'm I'm going to do this for you. I mean they really don't come more gentlemanly uh, than Tom. So I mean this book reminds me so much of of Tom because that was this is the one time I really got to work uh, so directly uh, with him uh, and, until they. They took me off the book at the end because uh, they 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 decided that all of us colorists were irrelevant, um, and they gave them all the studios. And then they screwed that up because the Irish guys still needed to fulfill their con contract, so they let the Irish guys color the, the the last three issues of this book uh. to help fulfill their contract. I was furious. I think Jason, uh. that's when you were asked to leave. I was yeah, I was gone at that point. Yeah, uh, and Lanier, uh, his assistant at the time. 
Uh, she made it up to me by letting me uh, do the cover separations for the last uh, several issues. Um, but that was an ugly time. I was furious that I didn't get to finish because uh, it was only oh, like fun. three issues left. Yeah. Um, and, it w- and, and it was, no, you know, and none, and none of the editors knew this was coming. They just fired all the colorists and then gave it to these studios, um, except for this book, which that wound up uh, the Irish guys coloring it. So that's annoying. Uh, and and uh, Justin, did you enjoy revisiting this after all these years? Yes, definitely. Um, one thing I remembered, especially about the book coming into this, was the art that stood out to me first time around. So seeing that again was nice, and it was great familiarization with the story again. And regarding the episode itself, um, it was interesting listening to both Jason and Gregory's perspective, um, as well as other episodes of your show about the comic industry in general, just because you don't, someone who's just an average reader, you know, wouldn't necessarily have that insight, you know? So, you know, you don't get that unless, you know, even from meeting creators at Comic-Cons, you know, you don't really get that, right? So So, for me, me revisiting this was, fascinating because i just spent so much time going through the 60s stuff issue by right. issue and i really i really did a lot of debating about how much time should i give this on my show but after rereading the series i'm like it really picks up a lot of the themes and it gives me more time because i'm doing a lot of stuff on the show and i've got a lot of things to work in uh before we get to giant size eventually but this is set before that early 70s stuff that we're going to be spending time on after this so uh be prepared for some really epic wonderful things coming out forward as we continue to review this and bring in different creators to talk about it and people are pretty enthusiastic about it, which I'm very excited about. Uh, Gregory, I always love spending time with you, man. It's really great to see you. Uh, it's it's so fun hanging out. And Justin, uh, I'm excited to see you later this year. Justin and I have hung out in person before. Uh, we have plans to do so later this year again. Uh, Jason, how wonderful to meet you and hear your story. And to uh, you've got so much personality. I, uh, I really enjoyed uh, hearing your stories and just feeling your energy today. This was a, a genuine uh, blast. And I'm going to be processing a lot of this information as we go. Uh, As we're wrapping up here, uh, where can everybody find each of you online? And recognizing we're going to drop this episode on May 1st, is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, Let's go in the same order, Uh, Jason, Greg, and then Justin. Sure. I'm uh, I'm most active uh, on Instagram. I try to post something there every day. I am at Collecting Candy, and I'm the same. I think I'm Twitter as well, and probably on Facebook. But really, it's the, the origin of where I do most of my stuff is Instagram. So Instagram at Collecting Candy. And like I said, it's fun for me to say. Um, you can catch me every Sunday night on the Food That Build America on History Channel. Yay! Fabulous, man. And then Greg. Uh, you know, I'm I'm most active on Facebook where, you know, I you'll you'll find me in just about any comic thing when people, you know, post, uh, you know, some old stuff of mine. I, I always will um, add a little spice, to, you know, because I've, I've, I've been around a lot of stuff. So I, I have a lot of stories. Um, so you'll you'll find me on Facebook uh, in a lot of those comic groups. So, um, or if you if you watch on um, there's a really great podcast called uh, Comics Kayfabe. Uh, Ed Piscor and Jim Rugg. And I, I, I always watch their show and I always comment and there's always stories that I have not told that I, I, I'll post on their, their stuff. Cause they, they do such a great job doing an in-depth, uh, you know, sort of dissection of, of the comics and the art and why this stuff is so great. Um, so, uh, you also find me on Instagram posting mostly pictures of food, um, which is where I, I see Jason, you know, posting his candy stuff and, you know, which is a lot of fun. Uh, I'm, I'm on, uh, 
Twitter, but I rarely, you know, post unless somebody makes a mention. I think probably I've interacted with uh, with you and and the other guests that you and I have talked with more on Twitter than anybody else. Sure, yeah, yeah. I'll um, keep tagging you, man. <laughs> but you know, just if you just look up my name, you'll 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 find me on there. I can't remember what my Instagram name is. I'm kind of look looking that up. Um, what is my name on there? I don't even know how to find it. Uh, I'll tag you in this episode. Oh, it's G Right Stuff. Oh, yeah, G Right Stuff. G Right Stuff is on. I am on Instagram. I'm just Gregory Wright on Facebook and Twitter. Just look up Gregory. I think I'm G Wright sixty two or something, or Gregory Wright sixty two. Um, I don't really get into a lot of the, the stuff on uh, Twitter. Uh, if you're looking for where I'm mixing it up, it's probably on Facebook um, in the comic page on stuff. But you know, and then uh, Justin. I can primarily be found on Instagram under the username J underscore Cosmic, spelt with a K. And occasionally I'm on Twitter, but not that often. I'll mostly be on Instagram. Uh, Justin's always putting out new cosplay looks. It is super fun and easy to chat with and a good buddy. So yeah, reach out to all of these guys. They're doing great work. Uh, lastly, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but the three of you are welcome to add me. Uh, but so you, show you can find on Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Leon on Instagram. The next couple episodes coming up after this on the, uh, on the Patreon channel, I'm going to be doing an episode on the Beasts family. We're doing a, a focused episode on the McCoys. Uh, my guest is Regina Givens, who is one of my favorite laugh 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 friends she's wonderful uh and then the next main episode of the show we are going to be reviewing x-men the hidden years numbers two and three with uh guest uh, ken nimura and if you've read i kill giants you know how excited i am to meet ken uh thank you everybody for listening we will see you back here next time jason greg justin thank you all uh thanks everybody we'll see you back here soon Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.